Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 270 and this episode is with speed expert Michael Drop. Michael is someone that I've been following for quite a while now over on Instagram. If you've not checked out some of the work he puts out, I encourage you to do so. He's Drock Performance over on Instagram. That's D-R-A-C-H Performance. He's had over 350 million views on his reels, the drills that he posts over on his Instagram page. So go and check them out if you've not done so already. On this episode, we talk about where our focus should lie when developing speed for team sports, some of the priorities that he would um, rank as highest on limited time, training athleticism, whether that can be done, and then we go deep on changing direction, how Michael coaches that, the stages that he takes on teaching players to change direction efficiently. He also talks about some of the mistakes that he sees players make when changing direction and some of the things that he spends time on working with. And he also gives away some of his favorite drills as well. So keep listening for that one. And then we also talk about his process for developing drills and also social media. So how he utilizes social media. He talks about some of the positives and also the negatives of social media that he's found so far as well. So absolutely loads packed into this episode. I'm sure you're going to take loads away from it. So I hope you enjoy the episode with Michael. We are delighted to have finally agreed our first networking event of 2024. So it's going to be on Thursday, the 25th of January at Ewood Park, which is of course the home of Blackburn Rovers. We've got three presenters at the event. We've got under 21 physical performance coach and member of our online community, Rob Pullin is going to be presenting, as well as Russ Wilcox, head of Academy Sports Science and Medicine. And they are going to be presenting alongside Adam Yates, who is the first team athletic performance coach all at Blackburn Rovers. So tickets are available. Go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop tab, and you'll be able to purchase early bird tickets as this episode goes out for that event. It'd be great to see as many coaches there and to kick off the year strong. I'm really excited to see the guys present and also head back to Ewood, where I've not been for a little while. So it'd be great to see as many people there as possible. So go and grab your tickets if you're interested in coming. Just before we get into the episode, a massive thank you to our sponsors, The Good Prep. The Good Prep is a meal prep delivery service that provides fresh, ready-to-eat, chef-cooked meals straight to your door. They offer meal plans tailored to your personal goals, current activity level and schedule. The Good Prep works closely with elite-level athletes and corporates to develop meal solutions that meet the ever-changing demands of performance and training. Their clients include Brighton Hove Albion, the PGMOL, Commonwealth Teams, Gymshark and many more. Their meals are full of all the nutrients you need to keep you in peak performance. You can achieve every goal you set. Plus, you can reclaim your time, eat better, move more and reduce food waste too. Their meal plans are designed to guide you through your journey to a healthier you. Take the guesswork out of healthy eating and discover the power of nutrition at thegoodprep.com and make sure you use the code FFF15 for 15% off your first order. Also, a big thank you to Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training? For pro sport teams and athletes, Hytro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure-validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe, and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery 
and maximise athletic potential like never before. Whether in the change room post-game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hydro has created a simple and effective tool that allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. Check them out at hydro.com or email teamsales at hydro.com to find out how Hydro BFR can give your squad a competitive edge. And last but not least, a massive thank you to Rezzel doing some amazing work in the world of VR. Make sure you go and check them out over on social media at Rezzel. Keep up to date with what they've got going on. And let's get into episode 270 with speed expert Michael Drop. Rezzel is the world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Whatever your team, your sport, your ability, improve your game and train like a pro. Rezzle, rezzle. Reactions, performance, accuracy, stamina, resilience. Train at home in the Rezzle Sports and Fitness VR Training Arena. Search Rezzle, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. Harder, stronger, smarter. The world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Available now on MetaQuest. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 270. I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast today, Michael Drock. Michael, how are we doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. No, it's my pleasure, mate. I'm really excited for this one. I think there's going to be some really cool stuff that we can get to into this episode. I'm sure there's a lot of the listeners that have seen some of your work along the way. Whether they know it or not, they probably use some of the drills that you've put out, seen some of your work. <laughs> Well, just give us a little bit of background on yourself to start with. Yeah, so um, my name is Michael Drock. Um, I've been a sports performance trainer for almost 20 years now. Um, and uh, I started off my training career in Chicago. And I was there for a good amount of time and, and got exposed to lots of different athletes there. And then kind of moved down here to Tulsa, Oklahoma in the United States. And a little warmer climate, a little bit nicer here. Um, and so um, I had to start my business from scratch. But that's a whole other story. We can kind of like dive into that if you want to. But um, yeah, I mean, a little bit about my background is um, growing up, I played almost every sport you could think of. I was uh, obsessed with whatever season it was. That's the sport I played, you know, soccer, football, basketball, tennis, golf, you know, you name it. I was, I was obsessed with it. And at a young age, I was... I was always the, I guess you could say fast, skinny kid. And so I, I understood how speed and athleticism can make you, you know, much better at your sport. Um, and I kind of, I was obsessed, obsessed with that. I think I, I remember looking back even in like probably seventh grade, eighth grade, I remember making a, a sled out of wood and putting weights on it and doing sprints in my backyard. And, you know, where I grew up in, I was in Wisconsin at the time, like, there was no trainers. He didn't, that wasn't even an option. I didn't even know that existed. And so it's just like, I was trying to think of ways to make myself even faster. And so it's kind of interesting to see like my passion back then, you know, and how I got into this field. And, um, but anyway, like that led me into, you know, me since being so small, I, like, I still wanted to play college football, American football. And. Um, so I went to the division three route, you know, the smaller schools and, and, but that was the best thing that's ever happened to me. I, I understood what a college sport was like, the work ethic and how to train myself because I was, you know, small for that sport. You know, I had to like really dedicate myself for the next four years to 
to improving my um my strength and my size and my speed and um that's when i really fell in love and knew what i wanted to do i wanted to train athletes and so um right after i graduated i kind of um one of my teammates brother started a speed training company and so right after i graduated i you know i asked him if i could like work for him and instantly fell in love with it and i was like this is what i was born to do and been doing it for almost 20 years now and how's it been having the facility working in the private sector how have you found that the private sector and so i got to experience a tiny bit of uh, the university side of the training so right after i graduated um my boss was contracted by northwestern university um up in the chicago area to do their football program and their speed training and so me and him for eight years would um go there twice a week and and put the whole football team through speed training and so i got to see a little bit of that side of things while staying in the private sector and it made me appreciate both ends but it made me understand like maybe my personality is more of the private sector i'm not a in your face you know choose someone out for not finishing through the line type of guy it's you know i'm more of a like I, I, i'd say maybe like a teacher i like to teach how to move your body right you know what positions you want to hit and so um and i love the the relationship that you can build with an athlete in the one-on-one um sessions you know you train these kids sometimes for years and you can really be a, a positive um voice in their head and impact in their life um but you know, but the private sector also has its other complications too. It's like if your majority of your athletes are, are, you know, the teenagers, well, you know, most of them are in school. And so you, you know, most of your hours are going to be after school hours and you need to work late. And so um, there's, there's positives and there's negatives, but um, I love what I'm doing. Awesome. I wanted to start on a couple of topics that we've covered in previous episodes around speed, but I wanted to get your perspective on it. So when we're talking about developing speed with players, and when I talk about players, obviously talking about footballers, soccer players now, um, with that, where should our priorities lie? Where do you think we should be focusing in terms of developing speed with players? Well, let me ask you, what age group? Developing speed at what age? Okay, okay. So if we start, let's start with academy players. So if we're talking sort of, 15 and under to start with man okay so uh, being in the private sector i get to work with all age groups right i've got 30 year old professionals i've got 10 year olds that are coming to me for the first time and sometimes that i say that's a little too young but um man it goes into the mechanics for me it has since day one um you 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 fix an athlete's mechanics the earlier you get them you raise their speed ceiling um so much their potential is so much greater um and i've seen it you know sometimes i'll get an athlete just one session and i tell them it's like if you can just like take what we learned here today and just keep running that way you're going to keep getting faster because the mechanics, you know, I can go more in detail if you'd like. Um, we can go into max velocity mechanics, acceleration mechanics. But 
But if your mechanics are off, if your if your body position is off, if your if your hips are in the wrong position, it 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 destroys your speed. And I've seen it too. I think it also plays at a much higher risk of injuries as well. I mean, specifically the hamstring injuries. Um, and so that's the first thing I I you know no matter what level I would get, I guess my answer would be let's start with mechanics. The younger you are, the 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 more moldable they are. The older they are, the harder to change old habits. But if you get someone that's, that's willing to listen and learn, it's like, yeah, you can get a 25-year-old professional athlete that can make changes within two sessions. And they will instantly like, oh, my gosh, this feels different. This feels better. You know, it feels different. It feels strange. But I, I feel springy for the first time. I feel like I'm running with ease. I'm not straining while I sprint. And so – um, and, yeah, I'll, I'll go into more detail if you'd like. I can – you know, the – if you can understand the three biggest things that I like will focus on, let's say for max velocity is understanding the, the hip position and your posture. And so what I mean by that is when athletes at max velocity or close to max velocity, if, if they're not more upright, you know, if they're more leaning here still, like they're still accelerating, they, their, their pelvis is going to be tilted as well, you know, anteriorly tilted. And, they're never going to be able to um, hit their their potential and max velocity because posture and hip position completely alters the path of the foot to the ground. And so, I mean, we, you know, I'm guessing most of your listeners are smart, smart people. And so they know like what, you know, lots of force, um, short ground contact in the right direction, That that is speed right there. And so, but if you, alter the, the foot's path to the ground. Um, you know, we're looking for the foot moving backward according to the, your, your body position, your center of mass. If the foot is striking forward or even more down at, at, at contact, like you're going to hurt your force direction. And so it's almost like a, it's, it's almost like a breaking effect. It's not quite a breaking effect, but it, it will, you know, it'll impact the speed a lot. And so like, man, the first thing I do is like, if I get a new client in, I get a good warm up in and I get, let's get right to it. I call, I call it speed school. Let's go. You know, I get them on and I'll record a couple sprints and then I go to the whiteboard and I'm teaching them on the whiteboard doing stick figures. Okay. See this video. This is where your, pro, your, your position is, you know, see this video of this, you know, really fast sprinter. Look where he is, you know, he's more upright. And so, and, you're going to get some pushback. Um, not so much from the athlete because when you have them do it, they feel it. They're like, Oh my gosh, this feels amazing. But you might get some pushback for, from some, some trainers and some coaches that say, well, that's good for a, a sprinter on the track, but not for a, a soccer athlete. You know, they're never going to hit those positions. And I will argue, you know, I can, I can pull up any match right now at any level. And I can, I can show you the off ball athlete sprinting at max velocity. It happens all the time. And if you can improve an athlete's, just their body positions, like you're going to set them up for like to be much faster and, and healthier and safer too. So. No, that's brilliant. I know you mentioned before about sort of 10 years old being probably too young in your um, opinion for starting that sort of work. So if you were to be in control of that, what age would you be starting that? So if someone's in an academy now, they're working with younger age groups, and we're talking about mechanics. We're going to prioritize mechanics. Where would you want to start that? Man, so I could say 
10 is a is an age where you can start. I've had some nine and some eight year olds that are I got I'm very selective at that age who I take. You know, if the parent reaches out to me and it's like, I have an eight year old that wants and they need to be more explosive. I'm like, okay, hold on, hold on. Like they're eight, you know. Like, can you give me some more details on what they're struggling with? And then they could say it's like they look goofy running or they're like they're out of control. They have no control of their body. And that's where I'm like, okay, well, bring them in. Like, let me see if I can just like help them understand how to get their body in some better positions, even though that's really young. But if I had to choose, it depends on the athlete, but 11, 12, I'd say more of that 12 year old range is really good. And I've seen it over and over and over again. You give me a 12 year old, consistently even once a week but twice a week would be awesome you give me a 12 year old for two times a week for six months different athlete They've, they 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 come in as one of the slow athletes on their team one of the slowest but they work hard for six weeks and you change their mechanics you you, you have them hit these fast you know stimulus of max velocity a couple times a week they, they change like their their slow twitch starts to turn into fast twitch they become more springy their foot contact with the ground is is solid it's not like the, a mush contact and you know we're making their springs tighter and they come out like a different athlete and you know they're they're thrilled you know you know and but other parents they're like oh my gosh the, like what did you do to my kid type stuff and it, it's those athletes those kind of stories are like why I love what I do, you know? Yeah. It's great taking a, a professional athlete and working with them just because of the, the level that they're at, it's fun to see someone, you know, at their peak, but it's really re- rewarding to take a young athlete who is slow and making him one of the faster athletes on this team. That's the, that's why I love what I do. You're opening up so, so much potential with that as well, aren't you? Because they're at that, that age. Um, yeah. Just on that as well. So if we now revert to uh, first team or sort of 16 plus in terms of an age, if you've had that athlete or someone similar has had the athlete from 12 onwards and they've worked on a lot of the stuff we've covered already, mm-hmm. where would the priorities then lie at those later ages? I mean, you got to start doing strength training with them. Um, and so... You know, I've seen the, the the different sports here in America and which athletes love the weight room, which ones don't, you know, soccer, they don't love the weight room as much, you know, American football, sometimes they, they love it too much. Um, and so, but yeah, you got to start strength training with them. You got to, you know, you might got to make them stronger. Um, absolutely. So they're more resilient, I, I think on, on the, on the pitch. Um, but I would still, I would still do a heavy focus on speed training. Um, even maybe going into, I mean, I do with I do with my younger athletes. Resistance sprints, um, resistance sprints are researched over and over again to to show benefit in acceleration and horizontal power. And I mean, let's be honest. Why do we have athletes lift? Is part of it is to make them more explosive and stronger so that they can move better. A bigger other part is, you know, to prevent, to prevent injury. And so, but I always, you know, have an issue with strength coaches here in the United States that, you know, will, will squat 
and squat and squat and squat and squat with their athletes and get them, you know, they can squat 600, 700 pounds, but they move like garbage. I was like, well, what's the point? Why are we doing that? You know, if, if the weight room, if what we're doing in the weight room is not going to translate better to what's going on in the pitch, then what's the point? It's like, now I'm not saying don't squat I'm saying absolutely, but there needs to be an understanding of how to take the strength and the force that you learn in the weight room and apply it to moving your body, you know, for acceleration, how, how far can you travel in that first step and how fast can you do it? The hip displacement, you know, how can I stop on a dime that deceleration component, you know, changing directions. So like that all stuff has to be, you know, start putting into these programs and, um, we can dive more into that and my approach on change of direction and acceleration training. If you want, um, I'd be happy to go into that, but you know, let me know what you want to, how much detail you want me to give. No, I'd love to dive into that. We'll go into that in a second because I think it'd okay. be great to get your perspective. The other thing I was going to talk about again, which we've covered a little bit before, and this will resonate with a lot of coaches is, so we've talked now about the priorities when coaches are working with players, especially over in the UK, they're probably really limited on time yeah. in terms of time available. So it could be a couple of 15-minute blocks, a couple of 20-minute blocks per week, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about mechanics, we've talked about strength training, we've talked about resisted um, sled work. If you were to have that time, so say we've got two 15-minute slots with a first team, let's say, Mm-hmm. Where would your focus be if you're managing a squad now? So we're not working on an individual basis or a small group basis. We've got a squad of players. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a hard one. I mean, I know it's it's always the biggest challenge um, for strength coaches, performance coaches. You know, you get short amount of time. What do you do? Um, I would, if I had two 15-minute blocks, I would do... Gosh, I would probably start off with some some plyometrics, um, working on that that the springiness, the Achilles tendon, the the foot. If the foundation, if your foot and Achilles can't handle the force, it's gonna like then all the other stuff that you're gonna be doing is it gonna translate very well for um, developing speed. And so, I mean, gosh, who was it? Stu Stu McMillan. I think he's been on your show. Um, he talked about you know, I, I went to the 1080 conference with, and he was one of the speakers and he did a demonstration of just talking about the importance of the ankle joint. And he's like, like boxers, they've been registered at producing like five times the amount of force um, of their body weight into their opponent's face. Right. And he said that wrist has to be solid. If that wrist is bent or if it's weak, that force is not going to translate into the opponent's face. He's like, for sprinting, that wrist joint is your ankle joint. He's like, the foot and the the Achilles, we want that to be strong and stiff. And so, you know, that's where these, you know, simple plyometrics, you know, single leg hops, but it's it's working on, hitting the ground really hard, really fast and developing that, that, you know, your RSI, your RSI index. And so like that is, that can be done in five minutes, you know, very simple stuff, 
single leg hops, you know, low intensity plyos, maybe a little bit higher going over a hurdle. Then you can go like two feet hops going over a taller hurdle. You know, it's hard to have a squad doing box jumps or depth jumps, but I would just do like, I would focus on that for five minutes. And then I would go into top speed mechanics. Even if they're not even hit max velocity, have them hit 90, 95% and hammer away those mechanics, teaching them what it feels like to get their, their hips underneath them to be more upright, to get more front side mechanics, get that knee, um, that hip flexion, get the knee up. And that way the foot can start cycling back underneath them and it's going to land closer to their center of mass. And so that has to just be habit. And so even if it's not full speed, you know, a 90% sprint is not that exhausting. You know, it's, it's almost, it's a good warm up prior to going out on the pitch. And so, but you can do, you can, you can set habits even if you're at 90, 95%. And so that's what I would do for one day. And the other day I would do, um, I would probably do some plyos again to start off with some plyometrics and then go into acceleration. And I would do resisted sprints. And now I know what you got, you know, what, what, 20 kids, maybe 30 kids, 30 athletes. It's hard to have a sled for every one of them, you know, but a heavy resisted band can do wonders. And even if it's a five, a five meter sprint, heavy resisted, you know, they can, they can get some really good benefits. And so, man, I'm trying to think it was Les Spellman who partnered with um, University of Arizona football for in-season resisted sprints training. Um, if, 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 if your listeners haven't looked into that at all, look, look into that. It's, you know, we're always afraid to do, you know, sprint training in season with our athletes. But what they did is they took, they, they used the 1080 machine to, to kind of really hone in on each athlete's resistance. But they did, I think, two sprints a week, really heavy resistance sprints a week. And I think they even altered every week, um, really, really heavy to moderately heavy to really, really heavy to moderately heavy every week. And they found that their athletes got faster in season. You know, the goal is just to maintain speed in season, especially acceleration speed, you know? And so it doesn't take a lot to, to at least maintain speed or develop some, some power that's going to help for acceleration. So even doing like three heavy, heavy sprints, you know, that's what I would do. And then I would even start into, so that, that could be like seriously five minutes right there. You know, and then I would maybe try to introduce some some deceleration and change of direction, but that's hard. There's just, there's so much you wanted to do, but um, that's where I would start. Yeah, I hope that was a good that. answer. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. It's great to get your perspective on that because I know that's a real life challenge that a lot of coaches are facing. And mm -hmm. um, I wanted to move into the change direction work now because I definitely want to spend a bit of time on this with yourself. For sure. Yep. When we're looking at change direction. When we're looking at players, I know you've done some great content on this as well, so I, I urge people to go and check it out. But when we're looking at players and we see some players that change direction really well, really efficiently, some other players just seem to get stuck. They just get left, and whether that's defending, attacking, whatever sort of position in the game, you see players. some players really struggle with it, don't you? So how would you break that down? Why, are play, why do players struggle, in your opinion? Yeah, and so... I really dove into this years ago because 
I had, I mean, the majority of my athletes were slow. And, you know, I like, I would get a really, really fast athlete sprinkled in there. And I'd be like, what is making this athlete be able to like, just stop on nine, boom, and he's out of the cut compared to this person who's getting stuck. And, you know, what my brain went to was, it's the eccentric loading. And, um, and so let's just do a real simple cut. Okay. Let's say I'm, sh I'm shuffling this way and I have to stop and shuffle back. Okay. And so I know there's more different terminology of which step is which. And so, um, you have that, that outside plant step or the, the final cut Then you have the penultimate step. I call it the inside plant step. That's just easier for my brain to understand, you know? So let's just talk about that outside plant foot. Okay. You have body weight and momentum coming in. That foot hits the ground. That is a fast eccentric loading. Okay. Think like a squat, you know, the lowering of the squat. If I drop into that squat really fast and try to stop, that's a fast eccentric load. Okay. And so you stick that foot into the ground. If the athlete can't handle the load, they're going to get stuck. If an athlete can't handle, if they can handle that eccentric load, think like a spring compressing. If their springs are strong enough, they can they can spring out of that cut. And so then that got me into like, well, how do you train that? Okay, how do you how do you train someone to be springier vertically? Okay, well, what you know, trainers will go to like a, a depth jump, you know, box drop, hit the ground, spring off the ground, or hurdle jump, spring off the ground, you know. So my, I started thinking, well, how do you load up an outside plant foot cut? And it was, to me, it was real simple. It was like, I use bungees. So I started putting a bungee on there and, and a bungee is really easy, you know, because you can, based on how far out you are, you can you increase the tension closer you are, there's less tension. So even if it's like a 10 year old athlete, you get a light enough bungee. All you have to do is pull them in a little bit. And their body has to adapt to that. And so, um, but then you go into the whole pretension. So before the foot makes contact with the ground, it's the, the body's way of preparing. And so that, you know, you probably hear some really good sprint coaches talk about the pretension before the foot hits the ground, the dorsiflexion, you know, and then learning how to strike the ground before your foot hits the ground. And so I will tell athletes to just strike the ground. Um, and so the, they, if they push their, they, if they put the foot in the ground rapidly, it instantly will create a tighter spring. But if they, if they wait for the foot to hit the ground and then their body and brain reacts, it's going to be slower. And so a simple drill I'll do for that is I, it's just, called, I call it a jab bound. And like, so they, the athletes standing, you know, here's the two feet, they're standing, they're picking up this foot and they're just striking and they're doing a lateral bound, but they're learning how to punch the ground and have that, that strike move their center mass laterally. Um, then you can go into even more detail. What part of the foot strikes the ground? Most athletes will strike the ground flat foot. You watch their foot hit and it's completely flat. Okay. Well, they're losing their, there's some springs. Okay. And so I'll try to teach the athlete to, if you, if you stand on two feet and if I shift one direction, I can feel where my body weight shifts on my feet. One foot's going to have pressure on the inside of the foot. 
one foot's going to have pressure on the outside of the foot. And if I, I have the athlete shift the other way, I was like, do you feel the weight shift on the part of your foot? And they say, yes. It's like, okay, you want to have that in mind when you change directions. If you feel your, your, your body, sh- or if you feel the weight shift to the outside of your foot too much on a cut, most likely your shin's going to get vertical and your torso is being vertical and you're going to get stuck. Okay. We got to keep your, their, the body angle, the shin angles, um, all at a steeper angle, the steeper the angle, the faster the cut. And so I'll tell the athlete, you want to use that big toe joint, strike the ground on the big toe joint. Now your heel might kiss the ground. It might be on the ground, but your weight is on that big toe joint. So now we're getting the arch of the foot as a spring. You're getting your Achilles and calf as well as a spring. To where if you land completely flat foot, you lose that spring. So that is just all outside plant foot training. And so I will, I'll, I'll put a bungee on. I'll do any kind of like, you know, I have the athlete kind of shuffle in and strike the ground, move out or a bound strike the ground. And so they're learning and not just learning, but they're, 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 they're training their body to handle more fast eccentric loading. So that outside plant foot, that leg, it becomes a tighter spring over time. And so, Without doing any reaction drills or any true agility drills, they should get better at agility because their 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 legs and their springs can handle more force. That makes sense. That was a long answer for that, but hope that makes sense. For no, I, I think that was awesome. I think that's a a great insight into it. And obviously, straight away, I think a lot of listeners have got some um, elements they could put into the training as well. When you get to a point with a with an athlete and you're doing those drills and they're moving and you've made some improvement, they're moving a lot more efficiently, they're hitting the right part of the foot. Mm-hmm. How then would you um, fill in that gap between that transfer to performance? If they're struggling to take that onto the field, yep. what then would be the next step for you? So what I do is, it, okay, let's say you give me an athlete or a group of athletes um, and on Session number one, I teach them the basics of change of direction, you know? So I teach them where I, how I want that, that outside foot to hit, how I want the inside foot to hit, because that inside foot, if you use it right, it will take the load off of that outside foot. It attenuates the load. You know, that's a big part. It's like that, that inside plant foot is a, it's a secret that a lot of athletes don't know how to develop or, or um, aren't taught that. And so... You know, if they don't use that inside plant foot to slow their body down as that last decelerating step, so much more force is going on that outside leg. And that's where we can get some injuries as well. And so, yeah, teach them outside plant foot, inside plant foot, then deceleration into the cut, you know, learning how to drop their hips, their center of mass first, kind of get their body under control before they get the feet into the right positions. I'll do that alone for maybe three, four, five, six sessions before doing any kind of reaction stuff. I want to, I want to see these athletes, you know, understand what I'm looking for in the positions and the angles and where the feet are supposed to be. But if I see them doing that really well, this is my, my go-to drill right here. Um, and you can do it in a big group. It gets it's a little tricky, but you got to get a, a couple of different boxes going, but it's my, it's my point drill. I call it my box reaction point. And so get a big, 10 meter by 10 meter box. Okay. And I'll have the athlete stand in the middle and I'm like, okay, eyes on me the whole time. And I'll point to one of the corners and they are sprinting to that corner while looking at me. And then whenever I want, I change the corner. 
And I tell them, I was like, as soon as you see me change the, the cone, I want to see you drop your center mass. I want to see you chop your feet, get under control. And then I want to see that inside foot first, outside foot second. And they do it. And because we, we've done it for weeks prior, just in these, these, these simple drills and they do it. And, um, and then I'll do this drill for every week for a while. And you can see each week, all of a sudden their reaction, boom, boom, boom. They're, they're stopping better. They're cutting better. And I tell athletes all the time, like this drill right here will carry over to the field. And so it, it has everything that, you know, and then if you want to throw a ball in there too, I'll, I'll throw a tennis ball at the end, the very last, very last one. And so it's funny though. You see, if, you know, I, I can probably load up some videos of this, but you'll see an athlete. I point this way. Great cut. I point that way. Great cut. I throw a ball up. Awful cut. <laughs> it's all of a sudden the eyes go on something they had to react to and they throw out everything that they, they've learned. And I'll stop the drill. I'm like, it's like, it's like, no, that was an awful cut. Yeah. I was like, you need to do it while you're looking at something and reacting to it. Otherwise it will not carry over to the pitch. Mm. And so that's my go-to right there. And then there's so many variations of that kind of drill as well. Um, but um, I, I teach them the mechanics first. I teach them, I, I train their bodies to handle more low and more eccentric, faster lows. And then I get into the reaction part and, Usually that, that's been, that works really well. We've added an incredible amount of content to our online community over the past few weeks, including presentations and webinars from Sam Portland, Sam Peeps, Sam Bowering, not just Sam's, Jack Naylor, Pordy Roche, Steve Thompson. And also most recently, we've uploaded a webinar by 292 Performance founder and former performance coach at the FA with England, Ben Rosenblatt. That's now available to watch on the community Ben talks about a number of different things, including the traits of high performance that he's seen, and that's both on a player's side, but also staff side as well. What makes high performance staff and how we can add true value to players as well. So you can go and check that out on the community if you're already a member. If you're not already a member, you can check out a preview on our YouTube page. And if you want to get full access, you can sign up to a free 30-day trial by going to footballfitfed.com. Click in the community tab, sign yourself up there, and that'll give you full access to our online community. Once you become a paid member after the 30-day trial, you do get invited into our members' WhatsApp group as well, where we have discussions every single week about different topics, coaches posting certain performance questions that come up in their role, and they get a number of different coaches' perspectives, experiences, and views on that as well. So it's a great platform um, and it's a great group of coaches and practitioners to be part of. So come and join us. If you're not already a member, go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign yourself up there and become a member of our online community. Here's part two of the podcast with Michael Drapp. Yeah, I love that. How complex would you go with those drills though? Because obviously on the pitch, you just talked about adding an additional stimulus in terms of a, a ball or something yeah. else on top of that. Obviously, within a game, they've got a lot going on. They've got a lot of things to consider. How complex would you go? Or was that where you take it to and just really try and master that? That's a great question. Um, I'm not a soccer coach. You know, um, I will rarely bring a, a soccer ball out into my sessions. You know, I, I feel like they get a lot of that in their in their practice, in their training with their soccer coaches. And so what I'm trying to do is 
you know, look at their sport, look at the demands of their sport, what kind of movements they do, you know, let's say it's a defender. Okay. What's a defender doing? You know, you know, there's times where he's hitting max velocity. There's times where he's accelerating fast to get to the ball first. There's times where he's moving one direction and he's got to instantly stop and redirect, you know, going back at an angle. And so I'm looking at all those things and then I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's improve all of those. And it's, it, it is simple to say, but it's, if you can increase their outside plant foot, their inside plant foot and their deceleration, all three of those are fast eccentric loading. And so you, you can, you know, let's say I never do any true reaction drills in my training. And all I did was, you know, a bungee or I, I use the 1080 now that the 1080 and I, I do all these different kinds of drills to improve their cuts, their, 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 the, the, the force into the ground, the strike, they'll get better at their, at their position. Every position will get better. Mm-hmm. You know, every position on the pitch has to, has to decelerate. They have to use an inside plant foot sometimes, mostly an outside plant foot. So if you can just increase, like increase that athlete's ability to handle those loads, they're going to get better without, without doing any reaction stuff. But then you throw in the reaction stuff, like then like they, it, it's even a, a more chance that, that it's gonna, you're going to see it on the pitch. And so I don't get super specific sometimes um, in my training. You know, like you're not going to come into my training and, you know, have me pass a soccer ball to an athlete and, and then run this way and then stop this way. Um, it's going to be more simple, I think, than that. It's going to be, okay, sprint at me, break down like you're trying to defend me, and I'm going to throw a tennis ball that way. Mm. And so and then, you know, then I can, you know, add on that. Okay, sprint at me. I'll throw a tennis ball here. You got to get to that tennis ball. And by the by the time you get to that ball, another ball's already in the air. Or I can, you know, take the tennis balls out and it's all pointing. And so it's like, I'll try to create like scenarios that I see that athlete will, will hit on the, on the pitch. And, you know, without getting too specific with their sport, it's, it, it comes down to acceleration, deceleration, under control, acceleration, change of direction. It's like, it, it comes back to those basics. Um, Definitely. One thing I love about the stuff that you put out, and I know you've referenced it there, is you see the intent behind every single drill that, that the athletes are putting into it because they've got that challenge of some sort, like a ball or whatever it's going to be. So I wanted to touch on drill design, designing drills. You just talked there about, I suppose, your considerations that you put in before designing a drill, the things that you want to try and get out of it. But can yeah. you talk to us a little bit about the actual process of you coming up with some of these? Because if people haven't seen them, like there's, there's very creative, very innovative, and there's loads that people can take away from some of the things that you put out. What's your process for designing each drill? Or is there Man, a process? There, there, I mean, there, there is, but I mean, a lot of it is, it's really hard to explain. My brain just goes there. Like I'll get an idea in my head. Okay, I need a, I need a good drill for you know this athlete is struggling with with his deceleration right and turning that deceleration into a reaction it's like well what's a good way to train it my brain kind of just like will will get there um but i guess if i try to break it down um i use i do use a tennis ball a lot and i have for years and i think i got started with the tennis ball because 
I would see some of these younger athletes that I train. I'd have them do a sprint. Let's say even the resisted sprint, you know, whether a sled or a 1080 or the run rocket. And I could tell that they're, they were giving me like 90% effort. Mm. Okay. And I'm like, I mean, I know to get faster, you have to run fast. Okay. And that's, I mean, I'll talk, I'll talk about that real quickly. Talk about that real quickly is that rest was really important for speed training. Like if the athlete is, is, is not rested in between their reps, their sprints are going to be slower. Their intent is going to go down. We, you have to, you know, you want that athlete to hit close to that, that fast stimulus as much as possible. So I started using a tennis ball. You know, I, I, I had them with a, the run rocket back then I used the run rocket and I throw a tennis ball up in the air and I had them sprint after it. And I could just see instantly the effort went to the roof. I was like, okay, I'm onto something here. You know, um, it's, and to this day, I'll use a tennis ball to get that intent um, because an athlete chasing after something is what almost every sport is, right? Yeah. Look at every sport, basketball, football, you know, baseball, soccer. There is a ball and an athlete is sprinting towards that ball. Okay. And so I incorporate that in my training a ton. And so then it was just kind of getting creative with like how I use that tennis ball because I know it's not just always, you know, athletes aren't in a two point stance all the time, ready to sprint. They're moving around. Okay. They're hopping. And so like, I just started getting like thinking through, you know, having them sprint towards me, then throw a ball or have them flip turn. And as soon as they, they flip turn, a ball's in the air and they got to go find it. Um, and so I started getting creative with that way. Um, and then, I mean, this is, these are more like individual drills, but then you can go into like competition drills as well. Yeah. And so I guess, I know I'm just kind of like danced on the question. I guess what, I, like the, the best way that I would describe my um, exercise design is I have the idea of what they're trying to train first. And so I want an athlete to train curved acceleration. Okay, well, I can I can set up a curve and say sprint. Okay, so like, well, now if I throw a tennis ball, you know, he's probably gonna go faster on that curve, you know, and now let's throw a reaction then too. Have him sprint, and now I throw this ball or this ball, he's got to pick which way he curves. And so I think that's kind of like how like my my ideas morph is I I start with what I'm trying to train, and then I think of a way to like maybe make it more difficult or throw a reaction in there um, or a way that they can have two athletes compete against each other. And so, um, you know, that's, I guess that's the simplest way I can explain it, but a lot of it is, it just kind of comes to me. It's, it's, and so like, you know, I always tell my wife, I'm in the shower. That's when my brain is clicking. <laughs> and so it's like, I'll sit in the shower and I'm like, I'm going through in my head, like each session that I have that day. And what yeah. each athlete, and then I'm like, oh, maybe if I did this with that athlete. So like, yeah, it's either in the car or in the shower is where I come up with a lot of these drills. I love that. And then, and then I'll, <laughs> I'll then I'll, I'll try them, and then some of them are awful. They don't work. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's not what I had in my head. And then some of them I do instantly. I'm like, this is this is great. This is a keeper. So, I think a lot of people. I'm, I'll happily admit that I've I've done stuff in the past where you you do things and you're like, right, the, um, the players are going to put everything into this, and then you're running the drill and it's like, 
uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like sort of 60, 70 percent. We're not getting what we want out of it. So yeah. I think that side of things is um brilliant, just adding that stimulus, that emphasis. And I know you said there in terms of the process, I think the really important thing that you're talking about is you've always got that that target that you're trying to hit. And I think that's the main thing, isn't it? Well, if you work back from that, the yeah. drill is going to represent it in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Do you find as well that you could use the same drill with two different players and you'd get different reactions? Yes. I mean, what do you mean by reaction? Sorry, like, yeah, reaction is probably a poor... I mean, um, in terms of how quality you... The sort of quality that you're getting from that drill from that individual player. Oh, all the time. All the time. And some athletes, you have to digress the drill and be like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna take the, the tennis ball out of it. Yeah. I want to see this first, okay? You know, or you really have to break down, okay, why if I have an athlete, you know, sprint towards me, and then break down and react. You know, one athlete will be phenomenal at it, one won't. Why was that? Why was that athlete who did it really bad? What was bad about it? And so you get the di- you have to go into the details. And so and it it could be, you know, he wasn't getting his feet wide enough when he was decelerating. You know, and so if, when you're you know if you're decelerating and your feet are narrow at the point of reaction, you know it's hard to move laterally because you can't put lateral force in the ground. It's like, or was his feet getting too wide? It's like, so you have to really look into like what that athlete did wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're going to have athletes that are going to be, some will be phenomenal at one drill and he can have his buddy that's with him. It's just, it's just horrible. And so it's your job as a trainer to figure out why, you know, and if you, if he, if you can't figure out why, then you got to figure out a drill that will get that across to him. And so that's, that, that's, a, that's the challenge. And that's one thing I love about the industry is that, Every athlete is different, and you have to figure out what that athlete needs to get better. 100%. I know it's another area that you've talked about before, but when we're talking about athleticism and developing athleticism, you, this is probably going to come from parents, from coaches. Like You're going to get people to say, like, can we improve it? So what's your opinion on that? Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. You can improve it. Um and so I guess athleticism is a broad, you know, definition. And yeah. so when I think of someone who is athletic, it's going to be, I mean, their ability to accelerate explosively, stop quickly, change directions quickly um, while being fluid and not tight and tense. And so um, their ground reaction time is quick. They can chase after a ball while looking, you know, the, the, the looking factors, like they, they can move their head, they can turn their body in space. It, it's everything. So I guess maybe, the, I guess it's body control while being explosive Yeah, is, is a really good one. And so, so then you got to dive into, well, what, what, what's happening when someone is explosive, but has body control? Well, that goes into the whole co-contraction of muscles. And so, you know, being relaxed while being explosive. And so, I mean, I mean, your audience knows this, but like when you're moving in one direction, one muscle group will start the movement while the opposite muscle group is relaxed. And they kind of take, you know, they switch back and forth, you know, bicep is firing, triceps relaxed type. So it's like the athletes that are not very athletic, a lot of times their body is fighting itself and the muscles are just tight and rigid and they can't 
understand how to be relaxed. And so you got to come up with drills to teach them how to understand that. And so Mm. a lot of, I've found a lot of multi-direction plyometrics help with that. Um, And it can be super low intense, you know, you know, I, I, I do a lot of double contact plyometric jumps. What that means is let's say I got, I'll make it simple. I got a hurdle right here, a six inch hurdle. I got two feet. I'm going one, two, one, two, one, two. So they're learning kind of like a rhythm of how to put force in the ground to where, um, if they're just kind of going back and forth really quickly, a lot of times you'll, you'll see them break down because they, their body can't react or can't, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I can't think of it, but basically it can't get ready for, it can't prepare for the ground in time. And so, because the body is fighting itself. And so if you do a lot of like simple rhythm hops in different directions, you know, forward, sideways, forward, sideways. So they're learning how to control their body and relax, but then also put force in the ground quickly, relax, force, relax, force. And so that's where I would start. You know, if I got a 10 year old who's super unathletic, um, can't control his body. I would start, I always start doing simple hops. Um, and then you can intensify it, the better they get at it. And then you teach them, you know, you know, obviously I'll go into sprint mechanics, but learning how to decelerate quickly and drop, you know, learning how to drop their center mass is a really athletic component. You know, athletes that can't stop, they don't drop, you know, they'll sprint and kind of just like try to kick their feet in the ground and they're like body will tip over all over the place. Well, they're not learning how to sink into it and, uh, and you know, I, I can't say absorb force. I can't say it because I, the industry has accepted that you can absorb force, but I got called out by a, a sports scientist once for saying that he's like, <laughs> technically you can't absorb force. And I was like, okay, so um, I can't say that just because I don't want to make him upset. But we know what you but, mean. Yeah. So um, <laughs> basically it, the body can't handle the load. Yeah. And so um, you got to teach them how to stay relaxed and then on the instant, turn it on, stay relaxed, turn it on. And that's to be the, the foundation of athleticism. That was a very long answer for that, um, basically. But that's how I start training athleticism. So. Just off the back of that, I'd love to hear your opinion on this because there's, mm-hmm. there's so much chat around early specialization, multi-sports for, for kids. Yeah. Do you see, because I'm sure that over where you are, there's going to be a lot of kids that come from your program. When they get to a certain age, can you look at a kid and see the difference between the ones that have played a number of different sports and the ones that haven't? And also, does that relate to any sports in, in particular? Is there any that you're like, this? you see more athleticism, I suppose, with certain sports than others? Yes. And yes. And yes. Um, that's a tough one because when I grew up years ago, I played every sport, right? But there were seasons for that sport. So this was soccer season. I did all I did was soccer. Then it was basketball season. Then it was basketball. And then it was, you know, tennis or whatever, you know, so you had your different sports and that's all you did in that season. It's not like that anymore. I, I think club sports have kind of ruined that. And because 
you get club soccer. It's year round. Mm-hmm. So then you get these parents who they hear, you know, from the industry, you know, multi-sport athletes are really good. Multi-sport athletes are really good. So they get this soccer athlete who's in soccer all year round and they put him in basketball and they put him in a club basketball and that's year round. And so they get, now they're in like two three sports year round. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I think it has more damage to the athlete. Um, they're burned out. They're exhausted. Their body breaks down. They're full of injuries and they, they can't recover. They can't, you know, but on the other end, if it's done right, hundred percent, it's good. It's good for your body to change sports. Even if it's a month or two to do something different, you know, um, let alone just for the mental part of it. Yeah. You know, it's so like, I'm trying to think of the sport that I see the most burnout. I'm going to say tennis. And I don't know if it's just the nature of the sport or if it's the parents mm. tennis, but they, I see a tennis athlete that's they, they start super young, six years old, seven years old, and they're put into all these tournaments. By the time they're 12 and 13, I've, I've run into so many that hate tennis. They hate it. And they, they, they quit and they take some time off and they realize they miss it. And they come back with a whole new, you know, perspective on the sport and a, a passion for it. And so I, th- I think taking time off of a sport, even if it's like a month or two in doing something different has as many benefits. But, um, and we know according to research, it's like, it, it is good for the athlete to, you know, put them in a different sport because they're going to be different, hitting different movements, different reactions. They're going to be guarding athletes differently, you know, um, if they're playing defense. And so like, it's, it's really good, but it has to be done right. And so, yeah, that's, that's my thought. You know, I'd rather have an athlete stick with one sport than play three sports at the same time all year round. But yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's might disagree great... with me. No, I think it's a really good breakdown because I think we get caught up into obviously, yeah, young children should do as many sports as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, then there's doing as many sports as possible and doing as many sports as possible all the time, isn't there? That's probably two different things. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really important point that probably a lot of people don't speak about. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of people experiencing that as well. So, no, it's a yeah. great point. It might be different here in the States. I'm not quite sure how the, the development, the youth programs are there, but it's, you know, I might make some people upset in, in the U S here, but it's about money. That's what it is. Yeah. You know, if they, if they take off three months of a, a club soccer year, that's three months of revenue that they're going to miss. And so like, I understand why they do it. I just don't agree with it because mm-hmm. I think it's detrimental to the athlete. I mean, I see, you know, especially with the one-on-one nature that I have with the athletes, they get, they, once they get to know me and feel comfortable, they will open up to me and they'll tell me like they're burned out. Mm. They're exhausted. And then you throw school on top of that. And so there, there, there's so much. And so it's like, it's like, there needs to be a break. There needs to be a break and it's very beneficial, you know, for the athlete. So. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. I think possibly the difference here, especially when a player is in an academy is that they will do multi-sports, but it sometimes it or well, a lot of times ran through the academy. So they oh, will, yeah. they probably will cycle it. So they, they get an exposure, probably the right amount. I suppose the issue that comes on top of that is if they're doing things on top of the academy work as well. 
So if they are then going to tournaments and doing all the rest of it and representing schools yeah. and that's when you've yeah. got a, he- a pretty heavy workload going on. Yeah. Um, I want to be really respectful of your time because I, I can't believe we've done 52 minutes already. It's absolutely Oh, fun. man, look at, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to speak to you about social media because, yeah. uh, I mean, the work that you do is massive on social media, especially on Instagram. But I think you do it in a really good way that there's such good education that comes with it as well. It's not just putting things out for Instagram's sake. There's actually real good education with it too. So, and this is a big passion of mine that I want coaches to share and I want them to do it in the right way. But how have you found that in terms of getting that balance between getting eyes on it, getting eyes on the work that you do, and also the education for coaches, for athletes as well? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Man. I think what got me on Instagram, I'll go, I'll go into that route first is I got to try to be respectful of some people, but um, my old, old job where I worked for a facility, you know, we hired a, a social media guy. And that was like one of his, he was sales too, but mostly social media. And I saw the potential that that had to grow the company. And I saw how he didn't take that seriously, you know, he literally would, he had a calendar, you know, okay, Monday was Instagram post day. So I, I would walk, see him walk out of the office, take his camera and do this, walk back in. And that was the post. Yeah. And so me, like, I, I, I'm more like, I, I, I do have a creative background. My mom was an art teacher, right? I kind of like have that creative as like, I saw like, man, if you just made some like decently edited videos of our athletes in here and posted that all their friends are going to see that and they're going to want to come in and they're going to want to come in and, and, and train with you. And so that was my first thought when I went on my own, I was like, I need to make cool videos of my athletes so that they would tell their friends, their friends will see it. And I'll get that. That's how I'll grow my business. But very quickly after I did that, and I put some time, I think I bought a, a gimbal way back then. And, and you know, the kid, a good camera, like steady camera, and then I started posting more of the drills that I did. And then it was, it was really quickly. The Instagram grew. I think I would post one video a week and like my following grew really fast. And I was like, man, like, it made me realize like all of these drills that I've created for years. It's like, I didn't, I, I guess I never realized like, this is, this is really, this is beneficial for the industry. Other trainers are liking to see this. And so I started thinking more of like, okay, I started thinking more drills and, and I'll be completely honest, a lot of drills back then, even now that I came up with, it's like, I literally came up with them like, like this, mm-hmm. and then I would film it and I'd post it. And so I was like, I was like, they didn't really have any like usage, not usage. They didn't have any like minutes behind them with actually training athletes. It was me like, Hey, this is kind of a cool concept. This is a, maybe an interesting way of training a first step drill. And I would post it and that grew the Instagram as well. And so but I'll be honest, like sometimes I'm like, like, ah, this is really complex to me to use with my athletes. I'll, I won't use this one. And then, um, or I'll find one that I really, really like. And I use it with athletes for months. And I'm like, ah, actually, I don't like it anymore. It's like, I think this is maybe a better way. And so it is a balance trying to find like, because I mean, speaking of burnout, I got burnt out with Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I stopped for a while because once they change their algorithms, like you get to post every day if you want to grow. I was like, oops, I just put my earpiece out. I was like, 
that's too much for me. I was like, I, I had some new, you know, some baby, some babies at the time. I was tired. I was exhausted. I was like, I can't, I can't dedicate this much effort to it. And so I like, I took some time off of Instagram and um, it was when I moved out of Chicago and had to start my business over again. I was like, okay, let's start this process all over again. Let's take mm-hmm. videos of my athletes. Let's, let's get the, let's get the word out in, in Tulsa um, of what I do. And so that kind of got me in the passion again of posting on Instagram and, and post some more videos but yeah it's hard to balance like because some some you know the pushback that you get from some trainers like this is you know this is garbage you know like i only post things that i really think are like really really good and so it's tough sometimes to get some pushback which i'm all for you know mm-hmm. that's, that's how we grow and, and there's some people that have pushback that i really really respect and I was like, I was like, okay, explain that to me then. They're like, why, why do you disagree with it? And they would, you know, you know, this is all in like DMs. They'd be like, like, well, no, it's actually a great drill, but I think you need to word it differently in the caption because maybe what you're saying is might not be what. And so I was like, I'm always trying to be like conscious of what I'm posting because I, I, if you start posting fluff, you lose respect in the industry, and. I'm sure there's a lot of trainers out there that I respect that might look at my training and be like, ah, you don't need that, you know? And that's fine. We all have our own, our own style of training. Um, but like, I want to be respected in the field for, you know, not just, you know, sprint speed and linear speed, but, you know, change of direction, how we train that. And, and it is really rewarding seeing people around the world using your drills. Like that's one of my favorite things is like people will post, you know, you know, someone from Indonesia doing doing a tennis ball drill. And I'm like, yeah, they, they didn't do it with the best mechanics. They didn't do it the best way, but this is still great. I love it. Yeah. And so, um, but it's been, it's, it's been really good for my business, no doubt. Um, but it's also been, I think, fun because you see other trainers do it, but then, you know, like I've learned so much from other trainers too. And I'm sure you have. It's just, you know, before Instagram, we didn't really have that. You know, I this is even before YouTube. I was like, well, how do you, how did you learn? You had to go to a seminar, and that's pretty much it. Or yeah. go shadow somebody, and it's like, and I think maybe that's one reason why I started getting creative with drills because I just like I had no other option but like, okay, well, how do I make this this person better? But um, yeah, the Instagram thing has been um, it's been a blessing and a curse. Because I'm sure you feel it too. You feel that the, the, the you have this looming over your head. I got to post. I got to post. I got to post. <laughs> and the, I I don't like that pressure. But um, it has been a blessing because it is it's very rewarding to see the the community grow in certain areas. So no big respect to you because I know putting your work out like that can be pretty daunting for a lot of people because of the fact that they do get people trying to shoot them down. And I think that can be done in a good way and a bad way, can't it? Like if, if it encourages good conversation, then it's probably yeah. an education for both sides. If people are just going out there to shoot people down and just for the sake of it, like there's, there's not much to take from that, is there? But no, I fully, I fully respect people like yourself that share so much. And there's so much that I know coaches and listeners of this podcast could take away from some of the things that you posted. So if they haven't done already, I urge them to go and check it out because there's some brilliant drills on there that definitely could be used. Michael, Appreciate you. if people want to check out your work, where would you direct them to? Yeah, I would go to my Instagram. Um, 
I just, I mean, here's a plug for my new program. Um, and we talked about this before we started recording, but um, I've had that idea in my head for years to take my change of direction principles and agility training and use the agility ladder as a tool. Because um, I'm sure a lot of us know the agility ladder has many benefits, but one of them is not actually training change of direction and agility. And athletes around the world spend hours and hours and hours on the ladder. Um, and so I wanted to create a program to where they can use the ladder to improve their, their cutting, to improve their fast eccentric loading. And so I put a lot of time into this program and I just launched it, I think it was last week. It's I call it the ladders aren't dead program. You know, let's revive the ladders. And so, um, and yes, I'm biased, but I, it is a great program. And I'm very confident, you know, if an athlete will do this program for the consistently for eight weeks, they will be a different athlete. And so it is, it is my kind of like my, my nuts and bolts of change of direction. You know, there's no reaction drills that I think my next program might be more of the reaction type drills, but it is learning how the foot hits the ground inside foot, outside foot, how to strike, strike the ground, how to move your center of mass. It's, it's, it's the nuts and bolts of my, my methodology. And it's a great program. And, you buy it once and it's yours for life. So amazing. Uh, tell people to go and check it out. And it's and it's drop performance over on Instagram. Exactly. Yep. And that's the, the, the website too, dropperformance.com. And so all that information is on the website as well. D-R-A-C-H. Perfect. Top man. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much for freeing up some time and coming on. No, thanks so much for reaching out. And I'm glad we did this. This was great. Thank you, mate. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Michael. I've been looking forward to this episode since we agreed to record it a few weeks back now. Um, and I think Michael did an unbelievable job of breaking down some of the work that he does. I said to him after, I think, I think it's quite hard on topics like this because a lot of his work um, is visual. So you need to be able to see it to fully understand it. But I thought he did a brilliant job of breaking it down. I do urge you to go and give him a follow on Instagram because that's where he does the majority of his content. He also told me after the podcast that this is only the second podcast that he's done, which I'm very privileged um, to hear that because I would have thought he'd been on a lot of different podcasts before and it's great to see him sharing the work that he does um, and rationalising a lot of it as well. I thought the thought process and tapping into that was brilliant and I hope you took lots away from that. I think takeaways on this one, there's loads that I wrote down just to pick out a few, I think um, prioritizing plyometrics was something that he spoke about on limited time. So I think that's something that sort of ties into what Sam Portland was talking about and, and also uh, looking at technique in terms of gate technique, running technique, spending time on that, getting efficient. That, that's the priority that they both speak about. And then also the teaching athletes and players to have that control of the body whilst being explosive. So dr finding drills to promote relaxation. And he talked a lot about tempo um, and it's rhythm as well, I suppose, isn't it? In certain drills that you're looking for. He talked about the, the sort of simple one of, of um, bounding over a hurdle, a double tap each side of the hurdle, but then being able to maintain a rhythm as you're going across. Quite simple drills, but done really well, can be super, super effective. And then some of the other things I thought was really interesting was the, everything around social media. Michael's absolutely massive on social media, especially Instagram. 
I said at the start of the podcast, over 350 million views on his reels, which is absolutely crazy. But it's because the drills are uh, they're innovative, they're creative, um, there's intent in there. You can see what he's trying to do. And especially when you hear him talk about what he's trying to do with some of the drills as well, you can see that in the drills. So that's the positive side of social media, being able to share it. He also touched on some of the negatives in terms of when you have got that following and you're putting yourself out there, a lot of people, you're there to be shot down and some people will take advantage of that. And it's a side of social media I, I definitely don't like. I think it encouraging positive discussions and people challenging you, that's fine. But when people are doing it with no substance, just trying to shoot that person down, I don't see um, much reason behind that. So there's definitely a negative side too. But also the education, the education for both him to post and get feedback on it, but also for other people just to see the work that he's doing and sharing the work. So there's education on both sides if it's done correctly. So yeah, loads in this one for me. I really enjoyed it. Make sure you go and give him a follow, Drock Performance on Instagram and leave us a review as well. If you're a new listener to the show, um, if you listen on Spotify, you can click the five stars. If you listen on iTunes, please drop the five stars with a short comment. And if you're listening on our YouTube or watching on our YouTube, um, please leave us a short comment. I really would appreciate that. I appreciate everyone's support on the podcast throughout this year. We've got some massive guests lined up going into 2024 as well. One more episode after this one to go for this year. And make sure just finally to go and check out our sponsors, Rezzle, Hytro and The Good Prep. Go and give them a follow on social media. And I will speak to you again next week for episode 271.